First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Benjamin Nugent, author of Fraternity. None of my teachers at Iowa, with, a, with, with, a, with occasional small exceptions, were interested in teaching us how to make people laugh. And so just having it as a goal, having it as something I tried to do early in my career was something that taught me a lot about honesty and empathy. We'll be back with Benjamin Nugent in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Benjamin Nugent author of the short story collection, Fraternity. Nugent is the winner of the Paris Review's 2019 Terry Southern Prize, and his work has appeared in the Best American Short Stories, N Plus One, Time Magazine, and the New York Times Magazine. 
His short story collection, Fraternity, features the young men and women of a Massachusetts college town who are intimately or tangentially linked to the Delta Zeta Chi fraternity. We meet privileged boys who occupy a space in our society that is the subject of much criticism. Nugent takes us deep into the worlds of these characters and exposes their flaws and their vulnerabilities and offers stories that require questions and honest analysis of the American culture that both supports and abhors the modern-day college fraternity. We began with Benjamin Nugent doing our sound check, which led to the first question. Sure, my full name is Benjamin Baker Nugent, and I was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts. You kind of have the type of name of a, of someone who I would think would be one of your characters. <laughs> That's funny you say that. Um, there's a list that people uncovered written by David Foster Wallace of good names, quote unquote, and Nugent was number two. So I think like Brian Nugent was the was his number two good name, even though I don't think he ever gave it to a character. So I think it sounds like a character, Nugent. Do you have a, a list like that? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I, I've never been able to come up with an objectively good name for a character the way he did. Um, I can only sort of name a character in context. So tell me about the genesis of, of all these ideas of, of thinking about maybe the first story you wrote and were you always thinking about a greater theme and investigating the fraternity culture on American campuses through fiction? Or did it more happen like one story came to you and then you were like, it opened a world? The latter. And um, I can tell you how it worked. But I would also say as a general rule, um, my process, at, at, at least... I don't know if this is true for everybody, is it's really important to get away from thinking about theme. As soon as I start to think about what the theme or ideas might be, um, everything really falls apart and becomes kind of dry. For me, the the voice, the way one sentence um, rubs against another sentence, so to speak, these are the things that you have to be engaged with um, in the actual process. And then you can kind of go back and be like, oh, I think I discovered a theme. Um, but in answer to your question, uh, yeah, the first story was Ollie the Owl. And you can kind of tell it's an early um, story. Uh, it's, it's a little different from the others. Um, I had a lot of fun writing from a frat boy voice and it felt like a character I felt compassionate towards, but I also found him funny, the narrator of that story, and I just wanted to keep writing in it. And so it was as stupid as that, as just, I like writing in this voice. Yeah, and I'll say that Ollie the Owl is, is a very different story than every other story in there, and that it, it mm -hmm. has this element of, of magic in it. Mm-hmm. You're in this this frat house, the Deltas, that is in this campus in Massachusetts, and up in their attic, they have their their mascot, who is this owl, and they're also trying to live up to this motto that was made from the very beginning of the fraternity: challenge each man to a greater worth, serving always justice and the greater good, which is such an idealistic motto. And maybe you could see it in like the '40s or '50s, <laughs> but now <laughs> in like cell phone selfie culture it's hard to to envision like 
what does this mean? We're just young kids trying to have fun. And they yeah. they invite an older guy. An older guy returns to the frat. He just comes. He's he's in a Porsche. And they he ends up witnessing them putting a strap on on Owly the Owl during a Take Back the Night march, and he is pissed at them. Uh, yeah, that's that's about right. He's an alumnus and uh, of the fraternity who who still takes that motto seriously. That kind of nineteenth century motto of um, you know serving the greater good, and uh, he's appalled by having heard about um, swordfishes um, putting the strap on on his head during the Take Back the Night march and, and dancing on a balcony, and uh, castigates swordfish for it. And Swordfish responds by taking the strap on and putting it on Ollie the Owl as a way of rejecting the alumnus's sanctimony and scolding. Um, and after that, they are cursed. When you when you did start writing this, were, was there an image that you had in mind? Like, how did it go to the new supernatural? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, at that phase of my writing development i hadn't yet gone to an mfa program and my reading in the contemporary short story was much more limited and like a lot of sort of beginning writers i had only read the sort of really famous contemporary short story writers and so george saunders loomed really really large for me he still does i mean he's i loved interviewing him for the paris review and he's still one of my favorite writers but back then like i i almost didn't have other contemporary influences. And so, um, you know, I think there's, I, I was, you know, not intentionally writing like George Saunders. There's, I was trying to get away from Saunders and, and not be Saunders derivative, but I think you can still see in the bones of that story, that Saunders impulse to say, this seems like a realistic setting for the first few pages. And then I surprise you by introducing an element of the supernatural. Um, you know, Saunders does that in Sea Oak, for example, which was one of my favorite stories back then and still is. That switch from like, we're in a realistic um, everyday American world to, um, hey, you didn't realize that um, a magical thing can happen, um, often a magical violent. So how did you go from writing that first story? That was the first story you ever wrote to thinking you're going to write another one in in these general voices and then mm -hmm. keep going? I actually didn't know that. Um, I did something a lot of writers do, which is I wrote the first good piece of fiction I'd ever written, which was Ollie the Owl. And then I sort of went insane and turned away from it. Um, I said, wait, this isn't who I am. This story is too vulgar and raucous. And it's not classy enough. I want to be um, a different kind of writer. Um, and in some ways, that's healthy because, you know, what happened is I, I went to Iowa and I was exposed to other styles and I experimented with them. But I didn't write another story about frat boys for quite a while after Ollie the Owl. Um, I think there was a gap of about four years. Um, and then. Um, I was teaching um, undergraduate creative writing and a couple of my students 
came into my office hours just to chat. And one of them said to me, you know, I was like, how are you doing? And she was like, oh, I'm fine. This kind of funny thing is happening to me, which is um, I wrote something about um, how I hooked up with the president of this fraternity and he ejaculated prematurely and everyone else in his fraternity now when they see me walking across the quad they're like god god they're just calling me god because i wrote that thing and i was just like oh wow that's that's incredible they call you god because you wrote something about how we prematurely ejaculated and he was their president and she was like yeah yeah i mean it's fine it doesn't really bother me and that was such a good story about frat culture and for me kind of a one that was both sweet and strange and um then I kind of went home and wrote the first lines of the story God, which was the second story about frat boys I wrote. And that turned in that turned out to be the second good piece of fiction I'd ever written. And then after that, I wrote The Treasurer, which was the third <laughs> piece of good fiction I had ever written. So it, they just kept being frat boy stories. Um, that was the only thing I could write. So let's talk about God. It's the opening story. And we have a narrator who we learn, because they all have nicknames that kind of have to do with how they are in the world or something they do, we yeah. have, have a narrator who is called Oprah because he reads books and answers, asks a lot of questions of other people. And uh-huh. he is talking about God, and he is sort of narrating that Nutella, the fraternity president, had this poem written about him him by this woman named Emily, who now they call God. And it's kind of a, of, of a, of a nice poem. I wanted to ask you about writing the poem too, but, <laughs> yeah, um, sure. he, he is there, he's retelling this and, and Melanie gets, she becomes this, she does literally become this godlike status to them where you think something that would be so mortifying, they totally flip on its head Another guy also has a sexual experience with her that doesn't go well. He can't get it up. And so she becomes this golden chalice or unattainable woman, and they have so much respect for her because it's like no one can crack her. And she um, goes to a party, and they do this thing where they do otter down down stairs where they get like on a box and get it wet and like roll down the stairs on the box, and she does it amazingly. And so she has this really high status with everybody. And then she ends up in bed with Oprah. Yeah, that was a great summary. Um, they, they worship her because she deprived their leader of control. And they all love Nutella and that she was so hot that he exploded from her hotness. And that then she had the gall to write a poem about it that she showed to everybody um, is something they find amusing and sublime. One of the things I really like about these guys is that they they do take these things that would seem so embarrassing, including Nutella, and they just kind of brush it off or they're they're so proud of their mistakes and so proud of their abhorrent behavior. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And that can cut both ways. I think part of why their endearing is um, their own affection for the mistakes that their community makes. And I think part of why in other stories they can be kind of despicable is their endless capacity for forgiving each other. 
um, and the double-edged sword of that uh, kind of communal brotherly love was something I was I was uh, continually drawn to. And you're getting this story through Oprah's point of view, and he's so sympathetic and so um, he really doesn't. He, he has that awe of of Melanie for sure, but he's also a deeper thinker you can tell about everything going around him and he's just kind of trying to find his place in the world there there's a there's a part in the in the beginning of the story where he's working in a pizza slash sandwich place and he is making a wrap and he forgets to put the the veg the vegetables he knows they're frozen and he doesn't unfreeze them he just puts them in the wrap and doesn't microwave it and his boss calls him in and you think he's about to get in trouble <laughs> and his boss said you know if he kept dreaming his days away he would wind up like him a lover of art and philosophy he pointed to his face with his little black mustache I promised him that from now on my motto would be no more spacing so you took this this moment where you think he's going to be in trouble and the guy is saying you're just going to become more idealistic and dreamy like is this what you really want yeah well I mean, what the story is about, and I um, I don't think this is a, a spoiler because it, it's it's pretty obvious in every paragraph, is that Oprah is very clearly gay to everyone but himself. Um, he doesn't understand this about himself. He won't quite face it. Um, and so there's um, a kind of spaciness and abstractedness from his own life um, that is an, that is a major part of who he is. Um, it's what enables him to be calm enough to be the one Delta brother who can sleep with God without being intimidated by her. Um, but it's also something that keeps him in this kind of dreamy mind state, this inability to face who he really is and what his true desires are. Um, and I found that the most poignant thing about him as I was writing him. And what I what I hope to show in this story is that as terrible as this experience is for him in the end, as much as he worries that he's going to be outed and um, his brothers won't be real and normal around him anymore, that that dreaminess at least is broken through, that some kind of living his life and being there um, is accomplished by the end. I think, too, that small bit of his otherness allows him to look, I mean, most of your narrators are pretty objective and actually very compassionate towards the people they're talking about who are usually their brothers. But I think mm -hmm. it allows him just a little bit more of distance to really explain the bigger picture. Like he could really explain that the fate of, of all of them later were, would be be partners in a business, that, that they are being groomed for something. And no matter how many mistakes they'll make, they might still end up, you know, screaming how much they love beer in a, in a Supreme Court hearing because that's their destiny. And he's really able to see that and say that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I wrote it well before the Kavanaugh hearings, but, but, but yeah, the good, good, um, good reference. I think, I think, um, that was um, that was an incredible episode in our national life, the Kavanaugh hearings for me, because it really did show how powerful this kind of community is, that you can be up there, you know, um, 
making reference to your bros and get away with it, that that kind of lack of professionalism carries you to the point where you are the law um, is so powerful. And um, I think these boys have a sense of how powerful um, organizations like theirs are out in the real world. And they don't know what to do with it. I think they're kind of freaking out and they value that power and also feel restrained by it um, because there are things you can do that will get you thrown out, um, Oprah feels. Oprah feels like he's not in a frat that's quite capable of treating him like one of the rest of them if he's out. And he knows that they won't throw him out. He knows that they won't be mean to him but he also doubts that he'll be fully accepted still. And, and that's what torments him so much. So can you talk about writing the, the poem? There's um, <laughs> yeah. the poem that the girl wrote, which is, um, feel free to read it if you'd like. <laughs> sure, I'll read it. Um, I hope you don't, uh, no, no judgment because it's the character's poem. Um, and if you like it, then, then no credit. I also don't deserve credit for it because I very much consider it this 19-year-old's um, style of writing poetry and not my own. Okay, so here's the poem. Um, and, I'll, and I'll read uh, Oprah's two-line preface to it. It was the only poem I'd ever liked that didn't rhyme. I read it so many times that I memorized it by accident. Who is this soldier who did not hold his fire when the whites of my eyes were shrouded in fluttering eyelids? I thought I knew you, knew you were the steady hand on the wheel, the prow itself. But what kind of captain are you, scared sailor with your hand on your mast, betrayed by your own body as we are all betrayed, on your knees above me, begging my forgiveness with the muscles of a demon and the whites of your eyes as white as a child's? That's the poem about um, Nutella blowing his load. Um, and they all know that that's what it's about. Did it take you a while to get it just right for this 19-year-old girl's voice? It took me a little while, but it was so fun that it actually, um, I really loved getting to imagine myself being a 19-year-old girl who wasn't obligated to be good at poetry because she was 19 and just kind of using it as a as a tool for expression i could never be as free in writing a poem as myself as i was in writing a poem as a 19 year old because I, I, did, I didn't have to make it good i didn't have to make it cool i could just be like well what if i had only really read whitman and you know maybe a little bit of sylvia plath and um you know i really liked captain, my captain, what would I write about the experience that I'd had? And so um, I tried to do that very earnestly. And if it's funny, it's not because I was thinking about it as I'm just going to show what a crappy poet she is. It was what would she really write? And if that happens to be funny, great. So how do you approach the intersection of satire, humor, and compassion and depth? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that real life, if you look at it with the right degree of attention, is incredibly weird and incredibly funny. People um, 
are funny on a regular basis just being themselves if you describe them in sufficient detail and have an eye for the funny things they do and an ear for the funny things they say. And you don't really need to add that many jokes to real life um, to make it funny. You just have to observe. Um, and in fact, I think some of the moments I find most frustrating in contemporary fiction are when I can feel writers thinking they need to add jokes or add cruelty in order to have satire. When for me, the best kind of satire is simply um, an honesty about what's in front of you. And um, a comedy that occurs naturally among the serious things. Like one of the examples I love is from Marilyn Robinson's novel, Housekeeping, which no one would ever call a comic novel. I don't think anyone would ever call Robinson a comic writer, but there's this one line where the narrator is talking about Fingerbone, the town in Northern Idaho where she's from and where the book takes place. And she says, the citizens of Fingerbone and its environs were very much given to murder. And to me, that's a really funny line. That's like something written by Wodehouse, but it's just smack in the middle of housekeeping because it's true. Um, the citizens of Fingerbone and its environs are very much given to murder. And she's just stating it plainly. And to me, that's where the good comedy in fiction tends to come from, uh, which is to say unintentionally. And a lot of these characters also, you have to make sure that they're human and you have to make sure they're not caricatures and that they, that you're not making fun of them. Uh, there are stories where I am making fun of some of them, for sure. Um, you know, uh, in Ollie the Owl, um, there are many scenes uh, in which I am making fun of them, for example. Um, even though, for me, it's never as interesting to make fun of people you don't like as it is to make fun of people you like. Like, that winds up being the funnier joke. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, like, you know, maybe you're a little bit funny when you're talking about people you hate, but like often you're just too angry to be really funny. Um, there are great exceptions to this. Like there are, there are, you know, essays writers write that are takedowns of other writers that can be hilarious, for example. But I find in general, it's like when you're making fun of your friends that you wind up being actually funny because comedy depends so much on honesty and when you know and like someone you're able to be honest about them to a degree you generally aren't when you hate them you know a really important experience for me is that before I ever wrote a good piece of fiction I tried to be a comedy writer and in fact I, I got hired by NBC to write one sitcom script uh, when I was in my 20s. And that was a really good experience, even though I wasn't good at it, um, in that it was just kind of a crash course in what works and what doesn't in making people laugh. And it's not taught at MFA programs. Like, once I showed up at Iowa, which was immediately afterwards, it was sort of this quest for beauty, which is a, a wonderful and, and noble thing. But none of my teachers at Iowa 
with 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 occasional small exceptions were interested in teaching us how to make people laugh. And so just having it as a goal, having it as something I tried to do early in my career was something that taught me a lot about honesty and empathy, that the comedy sort of isn't this other thing you add in, that it's part and parcel of the empathetic gaze you have to train on your characters. I'm not sure what when you were writing most of these stories, but I do uh-huh. I do also think that there's something fraught about writing in this Me Too age about fraternity characters that and some of the things they do and we can talk about treasure, we could talk about basic these yeah. stories, but I'm wondering how sort of understanding that about our culture fed into your writing of these stories and maybe any fears or doubts you might have had or not? Sure. Well, it was impossible not to think about it. I mean, all of that stuff happened while I was writing the book. Um, You know, uh, I started out with one editor and then me too took him down (laughs) and I had a different editor. You know, I mean, it it wasn't like I could just sort of ignore what was happening. Um, And the effect on my stories was pretty intense like and I think the book is more various for it that there are these sort of early Blythe stories you might say like Ollie the Owl and God that were written before not only before Me Too but before Trump um, and this new rise of misogyny or or I don't know if it's a rise of misogyny, but a new obviousness of the misogyny that was coursing through our culture and its and its dangerousness and the way it constituted a threat to our democracy. Um, all of that stuff happened while I was writing the book. And so there are these early stories that have a lighter approach that are less um, complicated in the way they sort of embrace the frat boy voice. And then there are these later stories like Basics, which is very much a post-cat person, post-Me Too story um, that are responding subconsciously to Me Too. I never, I never aimed directly to say, all right, I'm going to take on what I think about this moment and its complexities. It was um, subconsciously just affecting me in a very visceral way. Were you ever worried that people just wouldn't want to pick up a book about these guys that have male privilege that that they might rather read a book about you know a woman in Africa who's overcome many you know obstacles to make her dreams come true well yeah you know it's funny uh (laughs) I I think a lot about that question um I don't worry about it quite in that way like oh people are just going to read about um you know, a poor female person in Africa having a hard time. What I what I think about it more is um, why is there so much prestige in the literary world dedicated to writing that's very obviously important? I think that's always something I found a little bit frustrating that um, for me, um, you know, you can write the most interestingly political work. You can write the most angry and funny and politically resonant stuff, writing about people whose lives are not um, 
the stuff you read about in the news, who not who are not um, the people whose stuff you read about in opinion columns, because the presence of um, politics in their lives is not immediately obvious. It's there for you to to grab and point to. I've never felt the need to tell people, no, you shouldn't want to read um, a book about a woman in Africa. You should want to read a book about these white frat boys in Massachusetts. It's more that I don't think one is inherently more political than the other. Um, that describing um, a bunch of relatively privileged people and the way that privilege functions in their lives is just as illuminating of certain aspects of our politics as writing about poor people. So you mentioned the story basic. And in this story, you have these two characters, again, a frat boy, Zach and Sharon, and they they're both kind of awkward. And they end up meeting at this party. And they're talking about how they were as children, like the gay things that they liked. Like he said, I was so gay. I liked superheroes. And she's like, it was so gay. I liked older girls. And that sort of gives them an opening to talk. And they they sort of have this very antagonistic flirtation where Sharon is saying that she didn't like his face. And then they decide to hit each other. And then they start having sex and it starts getting angry. But then he thinks he's picking up on the momentum of the energy that they've created. And he kind of puts his arm around her neck like to choke her. And then she doesn't like it, and he tries to recover, and she asks him to stop, and he he stops moving, but then he wasn't sure, does that mean stop moving or stop having sex with her? And then he came, and you wrote, yeah, that's accurate. And you wrote this line, it felt like a clerical error, clicking send when you meant to click save. Mm-hmm. And so then she left, and he called his mom, and he was like, he told her yeah. everything. He told her everything. Yeah. And here's this mom who's a, a female making sure she's raising this good boy, and then, but it's also her son. And then he's really stuck with what to do. Do I say I'm sorry? Is that admitting something? Did I rape her? Did I not? And that's kind of the situation of the story. I spent more time on that story than I spent on any other story in the book. It was the hardest to write. And I think it might've been the hardest to write because that was written at at peak Me Too. It was written right when a lot of powerful men had just gotten taken down and the rules of sexual behavior were being scrutinized in a way they hadn't been before. And I had an interesting experience, which is that a friend of mine from college wrote me an email, um, a woman I had never slept with, but a a friend of mine from college who was a woman and said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, whenever you want. She was like, I'm going to write you an email about it first to get my thoughts in an email. And then, then we can talk about it. And it was like right in the middle of when all the Me Too stuff was going on. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, can't wait. And then it just never came. She never wrote me an email. She never got in touch. And I just started to wonder, like probably, I mean, this is almost banal because I'm sure Me Too made a lot of men wonder in the same way. Were there encounters with people in which um, I caused a lot of harm without knowing it because people didn't think 
of various sexual behaviors that were then considered normal as harmful. Everything was cast in a different light. And so I tried to imagine a uh, young person um, trying to navigate the new rules of sexual behavior at a time when they were in flux. This character from whose perspective the story is written, Zach, is 22, and he's had very little sexual intercourse in his life. He doesn't really know what the rules are, and he finds himself not knowing whether he has sexually assaulted a person or not. And I found that interesting because I thought that if I had been 22 and coming of age in this time, I actually wouldn't necessarily know if I were in his situation what the name was for what I had done, if it constituted a harmful act, if it constituted a mistake. And so I was trying to show his confusion rather than to say he's forgivable or he's not forgivable or he's done something horrible or what he did was okay. Um, I was trying to represent his consciousness and his confusion and his mother's confusion and their confused joint approach to his response. And I felt that inhabiting that confusion was more interesting than um, imposing a judgment on it, just, just showing him seeking a vocabulary for evaluating his own morality was more interesting to me. You have a line in there that says, the world was more interesting now that he and another person had been free with one another and that they, they liked each other. And that line between what is okay in the post-Me Too movement, like how much of sexuality between these two people who wanted to be together but then how much do you have to ask permission for? I think what's confusing to him, to this narrator, or not, he's not a, I mean, I suppose he's a narrator, yeah. Uh, what's confusing to him is that um, the very same dirtiness, which seems to fuel, or sense of dirtiness, which seems to fuel their encounter, is precisely that which threatens to destroy it and and destroy their mutual respect and appreciation. Um, and I think it's that um, push and pull between the desire to be sufficiently cool and dirty to be in order to be attractive and the um, potential hazards consent-wise of that dirtiness. That's the push and pull in which this character is caught. Um, and uh, and I think it, I think, most men I know went through some version of wondering about that during Me Too. Um, and, and you know, it's ongoing, certainly. Uh, this question of how do you balance the kind of um, indirect communication that and unruliness that... Um, are part and parcel of sexual encounters with these new cautionary uh, tales about consent. And I think also just one of the, the things about sexual intercourse that's so interesting is that you can think that you and the other person are having an utterly boundaryless, utterly simpatico, utterly same experience, and then discover afterwards that you were not. That turn has always interested me. 
Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this is a passage from a short story by Deborah Eisenberg. It's one of my favorites. It's from her collection, Twilight of the Superheroes, um, which came out when I was sort of figuring out um, what kind of writing I wanted to do uh, when I was young and um, had a big impact on me. And this is from one of her very, very greatest stories. Um, it's in that collection. It's called Some Other Better Auto. And um, the narrator is a man who is coming into the apartment of his sister, who is a genius who went crazy before she could do anything um, useful with her genius, with her brilliance in her life. She, she went nuts as a young woman, and she's sort of frozen now. Um, and so this is a description of her apartment. It was just possible if you craned and scrunched yourself properly to glimpse through the window a corner of Sharon's beloved planetarium, where she spent many of her waking hours. The light that made its way to the window around the encircling buildings was pale and tender, an elegy from a distant sun. Sharon herself sometimes seemed to Otto like an apparition from the past. As the rest of them aged, her small frame continued to look like a young girl's, her hair remained an infantine flaxen. To hold it back, she wore bright plastic barrettes. A large computer, a gift from Otto, sat in the living room, its screen permanently alive. Charts of the constellations were pinned to one of the bedroom walls, and on the facing wall were topographical maps. Peeking into the room, one felt as if one were traveling with Sharon in some zone between earth and sky. Yes, down there so far away. There was our planet. Do you want to share anything else about why you chose that? Yeah, I learned from that story how effectively you can show who someone is just by describing the objects in their house. To me, that's a heartbreaking description of this sister's condition. I mean, we get a little bit of description of her, her infantine, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the word correctly, infantine, infantine hair, um, flaxen, and the barrettes she holds it back in, and this sort of like teenage science nerd world she still lives in in middle age. And um, yeah, that description really killed me. Um, it might be because I have a brilliant sister who, uh, who never went crazy. She's just a genius. But I think there's something about... Um, his worrying about her and her and the way she's been undone by her genius that I find personally really moving. And, um, and also just that we know exactly the tragedy of her life by the careful detailed description of her objects. Um, that was a really powerful lesson for me. And I, I carried it into my writing. Like if you read the treasurer and you read the description of the stripper pole and what it, what's involved in assembling it, You'll, you'll understand what I learned from, from Deborah Eisenberg. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to read um, the first page of God because it took me a little while to figure out um, how to write Oprah's voice, um, how naive I wanted it to be and how much like a, a writer I could allow it to sound like and how much I could allow it to sound uh, like someone who um, loved books but was 
like reasonably uneducated in literature. We called her God because she wrote a poem about how Caleb Newton ejaculated prematurely the night she slept with him and because she shared the poem with her friends. Caleb was the president of our fraternity. When he worked our booth in the dining hall, he fundraised $100 in an hour. He had the plaintive eyes and button nose of a child in a life insurance commercial, the carriage of an armored soldier. He was not the most massive brother, but he was the most a man, the one who neither played video games nor rejoiced at videos in which people were injured. His inclination to help other brothers write papers and refine workouts bespoke a capacity for fatherhood. I had seen his genitals in the locker room after lacrosse, and they reminded me of a Volvo sedan in that they were unspectacular, but shaped so as to imply solidity and soundness. One morning, when we were all writhing on the couches hungover, he emerged from the bathroom in a towel, attended by a cloud of steam. We agreed that the sight of his body alleviated our symptoms. If you use a towel right after Newton uses it, your life expectancy is extended 10 years, said Stack's animal. If a man kisses Newton, he'll turn into a beautiful woman, I said. And everyone stared at me because it was a too imaginative joke. That, that was when I discovered Oprah's voice. Do you want to share anything else about that? I realized that I had great freedom in writing Oprah's perspective because he's just discovered poetry. The whole program, the whole story is him um, liking a poem for the first time. And um, I realized that the naivete he brings to uh, the situation is not an illiterate one. In some ways, it's really lyrical because he's just gotten into poetry. And when you've just discovered poetry, everything you think becomes grandiose for a little while um, when you're that age. Where do you write? I used to write at the Center for Fiction near downtown Brooklyn, uh, which is a great space that I highly recommend, their writer's studio. It's just um, a, an open plan office for writers, and it's, and it's brilliant hearing how unproductive other people are. You think other writers are having this like Kerouacian rapture where they're just banging away at the keyboard, and then you, you show up at the Center for Fiction and you realize they're all writing very slowly like you, because you can hear how little typing is happening. And so I love that very much, but because of coronavirus, um, I'm just writing at my dining room table like everybody else. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am very into going and working out to get away from writing, because I think that a workout is the opposite of writing. Because in writing, as soon as something becomes a slog, as soon as it becomes like, oh, I don't like this, but I have to keep going, that's when you know you should stop doing it, right? If it's a grind, if it's a slog, you're not on the right track. You're doing something wrong. Um, and so it's really nice to just kind of throw yourself into the opposite mindset, which is, this sucks, I hate this, I'm in pain, but I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and that, that's comforting after, after sort of fastidiously avoiding that situation. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, the whole time I was writing Fraternity, I had this writing group I loved that consisted of other writers I admire. Um, we had Greg Jackson, Christine Smallwood, Caleb Crane, uh, and Gemma Seif. And I, I love all of their work. And so 
that was ideal for me. And I, I had never had that before. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I listen to rejection, I think perhaps a little more than other short story writers do. I think if people aren't responding joyfully to a story, or at least with like a certain kind of energy, that's something you should really listen to. Um, it doesn't have to work for everyone, but in the first group of people you show it to, there should be people who are really avidly into it. And if they aren't, I think you should pay attention. I'm not one of those people who's like, I submitted this story 50 places and it finally found a home. Um, if I experience a certain amount of rejection really early on, I go back to the drawing board. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word, and this is because I've been working on a book about frat boys, is awesome. And I think there's something about the flexibility of the word awesome that appeals to me. It can be used so effectively um, as a sarcastic expression, like, oh, that's awesome. Um, and it can be used sort of semi-sarcastically, um, as in like, um, another cigarette, awesome. Um, it's also a very fratty word, and I think that's why I've grown so attached to it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Mitzi. It was really fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Benjamin Nugent, author of Fraternity. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Gary Steingart, whose novel, Lake Success, focuses on a narcissistic and self-deluded hedge fund manager who lost everything. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.